This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. And I'll just take a moment uh, to tell you a little bit about how we decided to make like a carta meeting entirely on human imagination. And this is one of those things that um, it seems to happen only in San Diego, where uh, two people, and I'm talking about myself, who I'm a professor in pediatrics and cellular molecular medicine, turns out to be in a meeting sitting together with uh, Sheldon Brown, who's going to hear as a first speaker. And Sheldon Brown comes from visual arts. So a scientist and an artist, we start talking, and uh, we realize that we have something in common. We are both fascinated by human imagination. So I make a challenge uh, to Sheldon and say, well, can we put this in a scientific contest? And we start planning uh, about um, a meeting like that, and we realize that most of the time uh, when we try to understand something, uh, if it's unique or uh, enhanced in humans, we turn on to compare to uh, our closest relative, living relatives, such as the chimpanzee. And comparing to other animals is difficult, especially if you're talking about cognition and imagination. So this time, I mean, I think you're going to hear lots of speakers talking about imagination in modern humans and also in uh, extinct in humans, such as the Neanderthals. And we hope that uh, the combination of all those speakers, all this knowledge will, will help us to understand a little bit about ourselves and answer those questions that Ajit posed to us. Um, so as Allison mentioned, um, I, 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 we started talking about imagination and, and in part because I direct this center, the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination here at UCSD, where we're trying to understand imagination and then think about ways we might more directly address uh, imagination as a phenomenon. And, and so then this comes around to thinking about what, uh, how might we think about imagination and its role in human origins. And I think we have maybe at least two ways to think about this that we're going to be exploring in today's program. Um, so one is, you know, what are the dimensions of our imagination that give rise to our humanity? And, um, you know, these particular characteristics that allowed Homo sapiens to create our anthropic era. And another is the critical ways in which our imagination creates knowledge about things that are beyond our ability to experience them, whether it's about far-off places or far-off time, both in the future and in the past. And so in particular, I'm very interested and curious about how we imagine something as distant from our experience as the origin of humanity. Um, so, but it begs the question, just what is imagination? And so imagination, it's, you know, it's kind of a mushy term. Um, it's, um, it can mean so many things that it might end up uh, meaning almost nothing. Um, so is there a way we can start to think about how we approach understanding the phenomena of imagination? And so we might start by looking at what uh, smart people have said about imagination. 
And so, um, so the, the kind of poster child for a smart person is Albert Einstein, right? And so Einstein said quite a few things about imagination over his career. And just one of these is imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited, but imagination encircles the world. And so Einstein might have been a pretty smart guy, but this actually says almost nothing about imagination. Um, it's very inspiring. Um, but the only thing I really take from this is that imagination is extensive. So that's a characteristic I can draw from it. So maybe someone who has a little more stakes in the game can, say, can give another kind of shading of imagination. And Maria Montessori, an educator. So imagination is probably a very important thing for an, for an educator to say something about. And for Montessori, it was imagination does not become great until human beings, given the courage and the strength, use it to create. So... Um, so she actually, that's kind of, she's kind of, you know, coming down a little negative on imagination in this quote, you know, that, that creativity is important to her, but imagination might be a little bit frivolous. Um, and Carl Sagan, you know, another kind of smart person, um, says that, uh, gives us another kind of even, maybe another kind of warning about imagination, that it's going to take us to places, to worlds that never were, which, which sounds kind of scary, right? Um, but without it, we can't, live, we can't go anywhere. So he kind of redeems imagination that, well, in the end, we probably actually need it, even though we've kind of, it's flown us off to some place that, that doesn't even exist. But I, I kind of start to turn to some things that I think start to shed a little more value on imagination. And of course, the first one I pull up is an artist, you know, Mark Twain, who says that you, you can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. And now, to me, this starts to actually give us something valuable to think about, because it starts to connect the imagination to our senses. And so there must be some relationship between experience and imagination. And um, so, so I think Oliver Sacks kind of puts a number of pieces together that I think are really critical to think about. That every act of perception is to some degree an act of creation, and every act of memory is some degree an act of imagination. So we start to connect perception, memory, and imagination together as interrelated phenomena that are you know, quite important. Um, and, and so if we want to start to find how do we, how might we think through exploring that, that connection. And I think art is, the, is you know, a really valuable place to think about this. I think, art, I think of art as this kind of laboratory of imagination for a number of reasons, and you know, one mentioned here by the philosopher George Raymond. Um, but, but art, for both how art is made, but equally as important for how art is experienced. And so as an example, we can start by looking at this, uh, this fresco in the Church of St. Ignacio in Rome and start to trace through maybe a couple of ways in which the imagination is working to make this a thing. Um, so first of all, you know, we note that it's this trump loy. Um, it's using these, this perceptual trick that you know, was figured out called perspective um, that uh, tricks us into thinking that something is a space when it's just a flat plane. And they do it here by extending the, the trompe l'oeil part is because they're extending the architectural features with this kind of imagined architectural feature. And it also uh, then connects that imagined extension of the, this church into this entirely imagined place called heaven. And so it situates it in a story space, which is this incredibly powerful attraction that we have to our, our, our underlying cognitive need to make sense of things. 
And it populates that, that space with a bunch of figures that look a lot like the kind of sweaty, smelly things that are standing all around us on the floor of the church. Um, but, of course, they're up there in, in heaven. But all of it's just made from these little daubs of, of, of paint, right? These little colored, colored pieces of pigment. Um, but our perception, um, you know, doesn't pay attention to the, to the small detail differences. We, co- we abstract from it and cohere it into what we think is the phenomena that it likely is, which is it's probably like a person or an angel, um, the, f- the fictional person. And so artists always exploit these capabilities and deficiencies in our, engage, in our senses to engage our imaginations on so many levels. And so we all know, you know about how you know, cinema works. It's, we don't actually see things that are moving. We're just seeing static frames that are, that are shown to us so quickly and with some ordered coherency between them that we can't help but think that it's a depiction of something in motion. Um, so it's depicting something beyond what it actually is. And this has always been you know, a, 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 a desire and, a, and an operation of art. So even in these uh, cave paintings from 30,000 years ago, we started, the artists start to try to develop methodologies to show something that's beyond the, the thing that's actually there, to show something in motion in the, with this static medium. Um, and by doing that, they are directly engaging our imagination as, you know, as much as they're engaging our senses. Um, so art, we can see, is this collaboration between our senses, our memories, and our imagination, which is also just the equation for reality itself, right? And so if we want to start to think about how we might understand that, um, you know, I've, I've, we've, we've started to think about how imagination is a phenomena that takes us from one moment to the next, that takes us from those moments to the near future, and then takes us from that near future to think about the far future. Um, we can also think of it maybe as having different areas that it kind of functions, that goes from the neurological to the cognitive to the social, that takes us from thinking about our kind of personal fate to our local, global, and even cosmic fates. So I, you know, so I follow the same mistake that I just, you know, uh, laid on Einstein, where imagination is everything everywhere, right? So, um, but within this, now we actually have a little bit of a rubric that we might be able to explore some things in. And so later on today, I think you're going to be hearing uh, about a project that Allison is doing that, that we're collaborating on about um, thinking about an underlying neurological basis of human imagination. And, um, and as we have, have said that there's this, uh, as Allison was mentioning, you know, it's, it would be an interesting thing to be able to think about human imagination comparatively. And so here's these great, uh, these great sculptures by the Kennis brothers depicting uh, early Homo sapien and Neanderthals. And, um, you know, can we think about some ways in which the, the, uh, the Homo sapien differs in some capacities from our cousins or early humans? You know, we know from early humans, you know, we start to, see, you know, we see this artifactual record um, that uh, the Venus of Willendorf, we see other examples that go continuously back in time and from other places, and even some examples from very long ago. 
Um, and, uh, and whether or not these are kind of extrapolated, we have always made little um, f- uh, fertility goddess figurines, um, or perhaps we're always looking for fertility goddess f- uh, figurines. Um, this idea that you know, humans have been making uh, symbolic culture for a long time is one of the underlying things that we think about with imagination. And even now we start to find new kind of things that, that help to uh, fill out that story. So seeing that there are Neanderthal, uh, just things that we're now attributing to Neanderthals as part of their symbolic culture. So might there be ways, besides looking at the artifactual records, to think about human imagination by looking more directly at the underlying biology of these things? And so Allison is like a, a magician, as far as I'm concerned. He has come up with these ways in which he can do something quite extraordinary, which is take uh, human stem cells. And on the left, we have human stem cells that have grown uh, brain organoids. And on the right, we have those, those stem cells, but they've been coaxed with in, to have Neanderthal genes that then express Neanderthal neurology. And so on the right, we have Neanderthal brains. And, um, and so what we're looking to do is then test them in relationship to how, what kind of anticipatory responses they may have to different stimulating environments and see what kinds of differences they, they have. And you can already see there are some morphological distance differences that are quite evident. So not only looking at the kind of neurological structure, I want to give a very quick example of something at a little higher order to thinking about at the cognitive structure where we're looking at other aspects that I think are underlying components of our imaginations. And one of them is is spatial navigation. And so understanding how you are in space and what space consists of has obviously been a very important part of most species' survival. Um, Here, what what we have started to learn is that we have two mechanisms of how we think about space. One in which we're egocentric and we kind of think the world reorients itself around us, and one that's allocentric, where we think the world is uh, in a a fixed uh, uh, coordinate space and we reorient ourselves to it. Now, we we use both these mechanisms. And in fact, when we kind of switch between them is one in which is a, a, a place where we really have to open our eyes and kind of re-understand what our relationship to the world is. Now, it turns out those two kinds of experiences excite different parts of the brain, and we can sense that with uh, EEG devices. So we've been working with a a team of of neuroscientists to develop uh, virtual worlds in which that have kind of novel structure where we can try to directly switch you into going from one navigational scheme to the other. And we do that by what you're seeing an example from in a video of this experience. You embody one of these avatars, you have a navigational task you have to do in this environment, and we radically change it in a very uncanny way to try to keep you stimulate to keep you highly stimulated in your spatial response to making a coherent experience from this environment. Um, and um, but of course, uh, I'll maybe just wait till the last clip plays here. Um, and doing that, people have to. Uh, we sense what kind of uh, navigation they're using, and then try these tricks to trick them to switch them into the other. But you know, I also want us to be aware of this idea that we, you know, only that we. Can, it's easy easy for us to study humans in a certain way. 
But we can also fall into this kind of circular trap of, of human exceptionalism, you know, that, uh, that we're the only thing with imagination or, you know, and so, so I think there are certainly, we are exceptional in many ways, but, but trying to characterize and understand where it makes sense to kind of think about what's different from us versus other species is a, is a critical issue, you know. So for instance, I know my dog has this amazing imagination, you know. Every time I try and I pretend to throw the ball, it imagines that I've thrown the ball. And, uh, and I've done this with that dog, you know, a thousand times. But there's obviously something about the anticipation of, of throwing the ball that is it more important for him to fail a thousand times because it allows him to succeed just a little bit better uh, the other few times that I do it. Um, but, you know... We may not even, you know, imagination, maybe there's even roots in things that don't even have uh, neurological systems. So this is a white blood cell navigating through a complex environment of red blood cells trying to chase down a a virus. And if you watch how these microbes move, you know, they seem to at times look to cut them off at the pass, you know, and anticipate they're moving one way versus the other. And this is without any kind of neurology. Um, so imagination is this tricky thing to think about, just as all these other phenomena like cognition, um, consciousness, you know, to try to think about, you know, we often bring, we first, of course, bring to these questions our own experiences and understanding, and we have to be quite imaginative to kind of think outside of that. And it can get us into some problems, you know. So for a long time, I, you know, I think it was one of the prevailing sentiments of, you know, Neanderthals was they didn't have a symbolic culture. And so this is from a recent uh, exhibition at the Australian Museum that talked about, you know, that they lacked the depth of symbolic and progressive thought displayed in modern humans. And that was before kind of a number of artifacts were discovered that uh, may have kind of start to make us kind of have a more complex relationship to that question. Um, so I also, you know, so in my work, I try to think about things that might be able to augment our imagination. Um, that how, and we're starting to do a lot of things with uh, uh, artificial intelligence. For you know, the fourth time around that artificial intelligence is suddenly the next big thing. Um, but, um, but we're working with ways to think about how to um, model aspects of human imagination through things like genetic algorithms and neural nets. And we bring to that a kind of human-centric approach. But in the end, the kind of effective, the effective measures may cause us to really come up with a completely different kind of imagination than a human-based model. Um, so the, the last thing I want to talk about in relationship with this is then how stories kind of work in this. And so we're the Clark Cent- Arthur C. Clarke Center. And an aspect of that is, the, is the, val- the value of science fiction as this way to kind of cause us to like radically think about new kinds of human conditions. And so some of the work we do with that, this is a, an example of a project we did with a science fiction author, Kim Stanley Robinson, and a performance artist, Marina Abramovich, where we took Marina Abramovich methods, which take things, which take things that usually take a few seconds and try to extend them into experiences that last over a few hours, and Stan Robinson's work, who's trying to get us to understand what it would be like to, to experience a phenomena that lasted a thousand years, like the travel to another star. And the ability to kind of put these two temporal shifts in relationship to each other gave people a far more visceral understanding of the, of the experience of temporality. And so these things like stories and performance and ritual art 
um, may have been things that you know we think really discovered once we started to you know extend the day into the night and then have to and then think about what we do with that nighttime. It's we we come up with ways to make better sense out of everything that happened in the daytime. Um, and so these stories, while they sometimes were completely fictional and talked about worlds that never were, um, sometimes they actually you know, brought sense to things that, we've, that we previously wouldn't have connected. And of course, as we've moved forward in time, we've just come up with more and more proliferations about those campfires and you know, the more and more ways to tell stories around them. Now, it's often thought that um, language came before art. Um, but I have another theory that I think language came about so that art could be critiqued and explained. And, um, and, and this is the artist Joseph Boys trying to explain art to a dead rabbit. Um, so Picasso kind of gave us this uh, idea that, that uh, you know, he said that, you know, we all know that art is not truth. Art is a lie that makes us realize the truth. And so this is the astonishing thing, I think, that our imaginations our ability to conjure meaning from occurrences has given us this ability to create all that we've created. And so how this happened and where this will take us couldn't be more important or more exciting to think about, and I look forward to digging into that for the rest of the day. So thank you. All right, I want to thank the uh, organizers for inviting me um, and for providing this incredible opportunity for all of us to, to be together and to imagine. It is the human capacity to move between the worlds of what is and what could be that marks the emergence of a particular evolutionary context and history for the genus Homo, us, humans. I argue that it's the human capacity to imagine, to be creative, to hope and to dream, to infuse the world with meanings and to cast our aspirations far and wide, limited neither by personal experience nor material reality that has enabled our lineage, the genus Homo, to develop a particular niche, a particular way of being in the world where imagination plays a central role. Humans are very creative, and we use our imagination to be so. This has an evolutionary history. The real challenge uh, to understanding human evolution, then, is not just the tracing of the bones and stones of the 2.6 million year history of our genus. Instead, it is understanding those changes alongside the reality that our lineage is a lineage that went from the makers of basic stone tools to the creators of amazing cave art to the constructors, constructors of massive cities and the dominant force shaping the ecosystem today. Our lineages transition from a cluster of medium-sized, medium fangless, hornless, clawless, semi-naked or fully naked, ape-like things with a few rocks and some sticks to a species who invented domestication, economies, cities, nations, religion, warfare, and peace. That is the challenge of understanding human evolution. Now, let me put humans in context here before you think I am talking only about human exceptionalism. That is, we know that there are many other species that use tools, that have incredibly complex social lives, that use sound as communication traveling across incredible distance, and that have cultural varieties that actually impact the way in which their genomes shift. Here's uh, an example of hunting patterns across uh, latitudinal variation in orca pods that has actually had a huge change in their structure of their genomes. So gene culture coevolution doesn't just occur in humans, it occurs in many organisms. However, we have studied 
other complex organisms like chimpanzees and whales and orcas for a long time. And we know a lot about what they do and what they don't do. We know that chimpanzees don't have cash economies, governments, religious institutions, creeds, or fanatics. They don't arrest and deport each other, and they don't create massive economies of material and social inequality. They don't change planet-wide ecosystems, build cities, make airplanes, drive thousands of other species to extinction, or give carta talks. (laughs) But we do. We are a particular mammal, a particular primate, and a particular hominoid kind of ape that is able to look at the world around us and see it as it is, imagine entirely new possibilities, and convert those imaginings into material reality. We have evolved the capacity to be the most compassionate, the cruelest, the most creative, and the most destructive of all life on this planet. And we demonstrate these abilities often. How this difference came to be matters. And it is by delving into humanity's very distinctive history that we are able to understand why we are the way we are. There's incredibly good evidence that over the last two million years, the members of the genus Homo, all of those things that have something to do with our specific ancestry, underwent significant changes in their brains, their bodies, their behavior, and they created a new niche, a new way of existing, both ecologically and socially in the world. This is a human niche and... This niche involves a particular evolution of something called a human imagination. Human imagination, I would like to argue, is as important as the bones and stones in understanding the processes and patterns of human evolution. All right, here is a summary of a whole bunch of interesting things that have happened over the last two million years to our lineage. What I want to point out here, and I'll provide some specific examples, is that this is not just about linear, even though it's a line, Uh, linear evolution. This is about the changing relation between individuals, between individuals in the material world, between individuals in the material world and their cognitive interpretation of that material world, and that cycle getting more and more dense. As we changed, as we changed the world around us, as we changed one another, we began an intricate dance which is culminating... Uh, today and hopefully will continue into the future. So rather than talk about this shifting in crania or other morphologies, let's spend a little time with a few of the pieces of evidence we have of our evolutionary history that talk about this incredible dynamic, this feedback between the material, the social, the cognitive, and our evolutionary histories. So we know that significant dietary changes happened uh, fairly early on in our history, Um, but those significant dietary uh, uh, changes enabled, for example, our brains to get much larger and a variety of other things. However, we sometimes forget that those significant dietary changes are really associated with the use of tools. Now, um, I'm going to show you uh, some tools here. Um, This is up here in the uh, upper, your upper left corner. Uh, This is an Oldowan tool. It's about 1.8 million years old. I'm sure none of you are impressed. It is a rock with some sharp edges. But you should be. Nothing else in the history of this planet, aside from our lineage, has ever had the capacity to take a stone, to look at that stone, and to imagine something else inside that stone, to take another object and work it on that initial stone to create something anew from inside. That's fairly impressive. And we know how difficult some of these processes are. If you look at the uh, next illustration here, 
um, you will notice that this is actually a reconstruction of all of the napping of a stone tool, right? So what we actually do is you go in and you get the detritus, the debris, and you piece it back together so you can look at every single strike. Now, when I say we, I mean the graduate students that actually do the work, not the professors. <laughs> but what you then know is you can see that the individual stone tool maker, even for these fairly old, old stone tools, here uh, we're getting into the Acheulean stone tool industry, looking something a bit more like this, what we can see is that you take it, you have the platform, you look at it, you strike it, you've totally radically altered the whole shape. You now have to reimagine the entire thing, hit it in the next place, hit it in the next place, and when we construct those together, it is unbelievably difficult. It takes a student today months to learn how to be a good stone tool maker, and that is with video training, right, with the rocks already brought to you, and without any large predators trying to eat you while you do your work. We can under estimate how important this was. Think about what I just said. Not all stones are equally good for making stone tools. So to make stone tools, even the most basic ones, you have to be able to find decent stones and replicate that finding. You have to go back and get them again and again. Then you have to carry. I don't know how many of you carry regularly 20 or 30 kilos of stones with you, but that's a lot of work. Dispersing that socially is very important. Then you have to make stone tools in an environment that is packed with very large things with large teeth that want to eat you. And remember, you're very small, naked, and you've got some rocks and some few sticks. When you make stone tools, it makes a lot of noise. So you've got everything sort of stacked against you. How did our ancestors figure this out? How did they work through it? Imagination, collaboration, cooperation, really focusing in on the social. But really interestingly, current work looking at what it means to make stone tools uh, by Dietrich Stout and, and a number of other groups have demonstrated that when you make these stone tools, certain areas of neurobiological neuro activity are accentuated, and there's some corollary patterns. Now, what are these areas? Infrequently, these are areas associated with uh, uh, higher functioning in memory, with uh, planning, and interestingly enough, with language. But wait, don't order yet, because it's not just the making of stone tools that does these things in your brain, which probably means they have a deep ancestry for doing that. But also, if you are watching a stone tool maker, you mirror some of those functions. And here is the critical component of stone tools. It's not about the tools themselves. It's about the social context in which they were made and used. We can debate whether or not teaching occurred 1.5 million years ago. What we can't debate is these complex stone tools were made at 1.5, 1 million, 500,000 years ago that you or I could not make without being instructed. Was there language? I don't think so but there was a broad bandwidth of highly dense information transfer that was social and that was imaginative. Now, around this time period, and between about 1.5 and a million years ago, as I pointed out, that niche is constantly sort of augmenting as more ways of dealing with the world occur, that density and those feedbacks continue to shape our bodies, our lives, our cognition. We know that by about half a million years ago, you know, give or take 50,000 years, I like to work in big numbers, we had an incredible capacity to collaborate in ways that seemed to exceed the collaboration of many other organisms. We had an incredibly complex cooperative parenting where males and young were also caring for offspring. We had a pattern of the whole communities responding to environmental pressures, not just individuals. And we had evidence of augmentation and enhancement 
in our imaginative capabilities. For example, and we'll hear more about this later today, fire. Uh, we heard about it already in the previous talk. People underestimate fire all the time. Yes, fire is wonderful because it allows us to access to nutrients that we wouldn't have otherwise by heating food. It also allows us to modify stones and wood to alter their, their physical structures so that we can better use them. But more importantly, as is already mentioned, fire turns night to day. Fire releases us from the constraint of the sun. Fire enables an expansion of the time we have to be together, to think together, to imagine together. But it's not just evidence of fire, which maybe goes as far back as 1.6 million years ago. We have glimmerings, elements, but it really is until about four or 500,000 years ago, 300,000 years ago, that we start to see it with increasing regularity. But it's not just fire and really, from my perspective, cool stone tools. Here's a nearly 300,000-year-old clamshell from Java that at some point, something in the lineage homo picked up, grabbed another object, and doodled on it. Most people, just like that early old one stone tool I showed you, are not impressed by doodles. But you should be. Think what it means to doodle. Think what it means to take an object, to take another object, and to alter the surface to create a new sensation. We see this over the last 300, 400,000 years, we see glimmerings earlier, but it's really over this last three to 400,000 years that we start to see this with much higher density. At that same time period, we also have two very interesting, okay, not very many, but two very interesting events. Here at Atapuerca, about 400,000 years ago, we have a number of bodies found in one place, a deep pit. In that deep pit are a couple cave bears that look like they fell in and a bunch of other things that have been gnawing on the bones but nothing else except for, as you can see here, this beautiful hand axe, about this big. It's made from a stone that is not local, um, and it is gorgeous. It was carved and thrown in, never used. What does that mean? We won't ever know, but I bet it had something to do with the imagination and the creativity and meaning for that group of people. And more recently, about, say, between 200 and 300,000 years ago, we have another evidence of possible movement of bodies into an underground cave. People debate whether it's burial or not. I don't want to get into that debate, but I do want to point out that we have glimmerings earlier on, but all of these things, burials, art, creative imaginings, incredible manipulation of the world, all has a deep evolutionary history and didn't just show up when our species shows up, because everything I've just showed you predates Homo sapiens sapiens. But by uh, the last 30, 50,000 years or so, we find clear examples of identity, clear examples of individuals taking items, reshaping them to create a completely new reality, a new imagination, a new way to be in the world. And it is my and many others' arguments that this new way to be in the world, these new senses of identity, this new deployment of imagination had a huge impact on those feedback loops between our ecology, between the materials, between our bodies, between our cognition, and between our societies. So the human niche is, of course, centrally located and focused. Our studies of understanding human evolution has to be about our brain and our DNA and our morphology and our bodies, but it also has to be about all of the different ecologies that humans have spread across the entire planet. So it's our brains, our bodies, our ecologies, and and you already all know this, 
our perceptual realities, the way we see the world, the way we think about the world, the way we feel the world is as important as our bones, our muscles, and our DNA. Because part of that system, that feedback, that complex dynamic that is the human involves the imagination. So the human niche includes creativity, cooperation, and imagination. Meaning, especially making meaning, matters as an agent in the processes of our evolutionary histories. It is specifically feedback system between behaviors, ecologies, cognitive and bodily systems involved in teaching and learning and meaning-making, communicating, that facilitated a new niche that had huge impacts. For example, it set up our brains. It structured them in a way that uh, Michael Arbib calls language-ready. Right? You don't just get language. It has to evolve. And the cognitive and neurobiological structures have to be there. And part of that is this. We also have communities of shared imagination. Seeing these multiple iterative events of meaning-making across space and time shows that communities of humans, and I'm using the term broadly because I don't necessarily just mean homo sapiens, were capable of working together to remake the world in their and from their imagination. So meaning-making, imagination, communication, creativity, and community are central. That's my pitch. However, all of this stuff sounds very positive and really, really exciting. I would like to say that our capacity to be with one another, to share our minds, to imagine, to think forward as a central part of our evolutionary niche also brings with it a few problems. Imagination made humans exceptional, but also potentially extremely dangerous. We have interconnected the world in a way that nothing on this planet has ever done. And through that interconnection, we are reshaping what the world actually looks like. Here's a global human density map. This is a better map than most that you look at because this is the way we're shaping the actual surface and functioning of the earth. We have imagined ourselves into a position where it is in the balance. Our ecologies, our capacities, our creativities are nearing or bringing us to the point where decisions have to be made and have to be imagined. We know today, for example, in the United States, we have systems of racism, misogyny, and inequality unknown before. So we need to understand how our imagination and creativity has gotten us to this state, always remembering that in fact, that imagination and creativity is the one thing that can get us out of it. Being together with one another, thinking together, creating, imagining, seeing the world as the way it is, imagining other possibilities, and at least trying to make them happen. That's what got humans to where we are today. Thank you. Um, it's such an honor to be here among all of these Brilliant speaker, so thank you so much for having me. Human beings occupy two worlds. The real world is what actually happened in the past, is actually happening right now, and will actually happen in the future. And while we certainly think about that world, we also spend this enormous amount of time uh, considering all the many possible worlds, what philosophers and psychologists typically refer to as uh, counterfactuals. That is, all the ways that the world could have been but wasn't, and all the ways that the world could be but aren't. 
And not only is counterfactual thinking pervasive in our everyday thought, perhaps you're doing it right now, um, but engaging with these imagined possibilities deeply affects us. It affects our decisions, it affects our judgments, and it affects our emotional experiences. And from an evolutionary perspective, this initially seems a bit surprising, right? While it's obvious why engaging deeply with our actual real experience would give us some sort of edge, um, it's less obvious what we get from engaging so profoundly and emotionally uh, with these imagined worlds uh, as well. And this seems particularly paradoxical uh, when you consider the huge proportion of time that very young children are engaging with these imaginary worlds. In fact, as soon as babies can talk, they immediately begin talking about the possible in addition to the real. Um, they begin to spontaneously produce symbolic play, uh, substituting things like you know, these mouse from a computer for a telephone very early on, around 18 months. There's even evidence that 15-month-olds are recognizing pretend sequences that are produced by adults in their environment. So that's pretty early. Um, so why, right? Why would very, very young children who, by their very definition, have so much that they have to learn about the actual world, spend so much of their time and energy and resources, not to mention the resources of their caregivers who are responsible for them, um, engaging with unreality? Right? We have to answer this question. So classically, psychologists, including the father of developmental psychology, Jean Piaget, but also our friend Sigmund Freud here, who pops up all over the place, uh, offered some pretty uncharitable characterizations of pretend play in childhood. They essentially attributed its prevalence to children's inability to differentiate between the products of their imaginations and reality, between fantasy and reality. Um, decades of research have shown that, to the contrary, children are actually quite proficient and sophisticated at distinguishing between real objects, events, and people, and those that are products of their imagination and the imaginations of others around them. I'm going to give you just one example of a study. This was conducted by Jackie Woolley just to show you how this work is typically done with kids. Uh, a child might enter a room with three boxes. They'll, be, they'll watch as an experimenter puts a pencil in box one. Box two is left empty. Uh, in box three, the child is uh, told to imagine that there's a pencil in inside the box. Um, afterwards, the experimenter might ask the child a bunch of questions and engage with them. One of those questions will be, is there a pencil in box three? And children have no problem with this. They say, yeah, sure, right? They, they have no issue with transporting themselves into this imagined space in which there's a pencil inside of box three. But if some person comes in from the other room who wasn't engaged in this fictional context initially and says, uh, hey, I need a pencil. Can you give me one? Uh, children, even as young as two, aren't going to make the mistake of looking in box three, right? They know there's no actual pencil in there. Instead, they reach into box one and give the experimenter what it is that they actually asked for, right? So even though children spend hours and hours of their lives pretending, um, they know that they're pretending. Um, and this ability, then, to adopt this counterfactual or false premise, like there's a pencil inside of this cup to make inferences about events that might happen in a world in which there were a pencil in the cup, but also to separate right, that imagined space from the real world is already present from as early as two years of age. So this is very, very early on. Um, in fact, there's other prominent features of pretend play that suggest that it's the result of competence uh, rather than cognitive limitations. So it's largely unique uh, to human beings. It's often social in nature, like many of our more complex functions. It becomes increasingly elaborate over time. You'd, you'd expect the opposite, right, if it was the result of a cognitive limitation. Young children do this object substitution. As they get a little bit older, they don't even need objects to scaffold their pretend play with. They just imagine things, completely imaginary events. A little bit later, they might develop an imaginary friend or companion, right? 
this is an entity that has a consistent psychology that they interact with over time, a rich and complex psychology in social life. Um, even later in late childhood and adolescence even, uh, children engage with um, paracosm, so little micro worlds that they construct of their own design. Um, and of course, as we know, this extends um, into adulthood as well. We all appreciate fictional artifacts, um, and this is continuous uh, throughout the lifespan. Okay, so given that very young children engage with imaginary worlds, which seems, seems obvious, um, and that this engagement doesn't stem from their confusion, which is a bit less obvious, but not so much anymore, um, then why are they doing it? Right? Why are they doing it, and how? How are they doing it? Well, we know that play is characteristic of young animals across a wide range of species, and that the behaviors that are involved in play are also those that will typically be most important for adults of that species. And in this way, play is a form of exploratory learning. So the immature animal uh, can explore and practice alternative forms of action in a low-cost, low-risk environment without any of the pressures of having to actually achieve a particular goal, like staying alive, for example. Um, and in fact, one of the most distinctive features, um, biological features of human beings is our unusually long period of immaturity. Compared with our closest primary relatives, we've evolved to have this dramatically extended protected period of childhood, uh, early, middle, late adolescence, after we go to college, right? We're still protected in this period of immaturity. Um, and uh, what we're encouraged to do is explore during this period of time. We're engaging in this exploratory learning. So while it's sort of easy to see how physical forms of exploratory play, like play fighting and hunting and climbing, um, might translate into later adult skills, uh, pretend play is sort of by its very definition severed from reality. Right? So in order to make this analogy with play, with other forms of play work, we have to really identify the role that this particular type of cognition, this counterfactual type of cognition, plays in cognition. Um, so to put this in a form of a question, why might it be beneficial to draw conclusions from false premises, like there's a pencil in the cup? So to answer this question, we can uh, consider how children's minds are constructed to support and also to encourage their generation of a wide array of alternative possibilities. And it turns out that new ideas about children's earliest learning mechanisms suggest that the very same abilities that allow children to learn so much about the world and to reason so powerfully about it also allows them to imagine alternatives to that world. And more specifically, it's the ability to represent cause and effect relationships that seems to underpin some of the ability to imagine uh, possible worlds. And not only that, but the ability to imagine possible worlds feeds back to facilitate our reasoning about cause and effect relationships. So the rest of this talk, I'm going to very quickly try to unpack the sort of theoretical grounds uh, for making this claim. So by about five years of age, children have already developed complex causal theories in a variety of domains, everything from understanding biological principles to other minds, to the nature of physical forces and properties in the world. And the question that motivates my research, but also just sort of the fields of cognitive development in general, is how this ever happens. How is it that young children are able to learn these abstract structured causal representations of the world so quickly and accurately given the relatively limited information that's available to them uh, from their senses. What's the origin of this knowledge? And one classic answer from developmental psychology um, points to the similarities between children's learning and learning in science. And the idea here proposes that children's early theories share, in a meaningful way, um, structure, function and dynamics uh, to theory change um, in science. And in particular, that children, just like little scientists, are implicitly formulating hypotheses about the world uh, and then testing and rationally revising those hypotheses in light of new evidence that they observe. 
So this sounds a bit far-fetched when you first hear it. Uh, to help you imagine this, I'm going to show you a video of this idea. Um, what this child is doing in this video uh, is playing with a blicket detector, which is a toy that we typically use in my lab. This is just a flexible causal system. It's a box that lights up, which is the effect, for certain things, which is the cause. And it allows us to explore children's causal inferences really well. Um, so I'm just going to let you watch it. And I want you to keep an eye out for this child engaging in hypothesis testing behavior, similar to a scientist. This on the box, and this on the box. Look. Uh-huh. That, this makes that light up the box. Mm-hmm. How about this? That makes the other side. Here's a new hypothesis. Ah! It's a familiar expression to those of us who do science. <laughs> Despair. the child's idea, pretty imaginative. <laughs> Like in science, it ends with embarrassment in front of our peers. So even though um, these ideas about children's learning have been around for some time, recently there's been some major advances in our ability to formally describe the cognitive processes that might be taking place. And the way that this is done is by integrating developmental psychology, so this kind of work uh, with computational theories. Um, so one of the central ideas in this framework is that children's intuitive causal theories can be expressed in a kind of causal map or abstract picture of how the world works, a little bit like this, right? So for example, sunlight and water cause plants to grow, forces and contact cause objects to move through space, desires and beliefs cause someone to act towards a particular goal. And in many ways, these causal maps are analogous to the more familiar spatial maps that depict the various locations of objects in relation to one another. Um, this is a cognitive feature that we share with other animals, including rodents, like depicted here. Um, so having a spatial map is useful, right? And this was mentioned earlier, because it allows for this non-egocentric representation of knowledge, right? It doesn't matter if where I am in the space, I can still represent the space. This means that it's flexible, right? I can plan my route um, in advance and think about the different ways that I might approach this problem. And it becomes updated as new information about the space um, becomes available. So in a similar way, having a causal map provides a complex representation of the causal relationships or an abstract picture of how one thing might be causally connected to another. And just like our spatial maps, it's updated as new information becomes available to us. So you can think of each of these different causal models as a particular hypothesis that we might hold about the true causal structure of the world. So for example, if I notice that the flowers in my window begin to wilt, I might entertain several possible causal models, each of which 
generate their own patterns of predictions, right? Um, so it could be that too much sunlight is causing um, uh, both the dry soil and the wilted flowers, or it could be that the sunlight is actually uh, causing the dry soil and it's the dry soil, right, that's causing my flowers to wilt. And if I'm holding uh, a causal model that happens to be correct, then the predictions that it generates will be accurate with respect to my observations in the world, right? But if it's incorrect, if I hold the wrong causal model, my predictions are going to fail me. Um, and this will prompt me to adjust my causal model to better approximate the true causal structure of the world. So in effect, this process, the process of early learning, um, might be conceived as a process of comparing possible worlds and updating those possibilities in light of new evidence um, as you observe it. And critically, these causal maps also include a means for representing possible future actions for planning in the world. So if we return to the two sort of versions of the wilted flowers that I described earlier, um, even though each of these representations have the same variables, right, sunlight, soil, flowers, the differences in their structure lead to really different effects following some action that it might take on the world, right? So let's say I intervene on my dry soil by watering my plants, right? Hopefully what you can see here is that depending upon which of the two causal structures is an accurate representation of the world, watering my plants here uh, in the first one is going to have no effect on my flowers, right? Because it's the sunlight that's directly causing them to wilt. In the, in the other case, though, watering the soil will, will actually um, have some effect. And importantly, these interventions could be real. I could actually do them. Um, or they can be imagined hypothetical actions, right? I can just sort of think what it would be like if I were to intervene on the world in a particular way. And it turns out that the evidence shows that even preschool-age children are able to do this. They're able to reason about interventions both in the real world and also in their imaginations. So this gives us an extremely powerful tool uh, for planning and considering the outcomes of potential actions in advance. We start with a premise that might be false with respect to the world, and then we just reason and about the implications of that premise downstream. This leads us to the ability to design new interventions and to literally um, change the future uh, for ourselves and our environment. So now we have to push the pause button for a minute because this all sounds really, really complicated to us. Uh, all of these things are, of course, happening implicitly, not explicitly. But you might be wondering whether or not kids could actually do this. So if we return to pretend play for a minute, we see that children are routinely considering premises that contradict their own knowledge. Um, they ignore the fact that the teacup is empty, and they proceed to wipe up the imagined tea when the cup is overturned anyway. Really, any time, really, that children are acting out the outcome of pretend events, they're necessarily setting aside their interpretation, their causal model of the real world, and reasoning about the causal consequences of some pretend premise, right? some other possible world. Um, and in fact, it's causation itself that gives fantasy its logic. Um, despite the fact that children could, in principle, pretend about anything at all, it's pretend after all, if you've ever hung out with children, you know that they don't actually usually do this. right? Um, instead, some research by Paul Harris has shown that if a child pretends to spill the sugar during their tea party, they're going to opt to sweep it up with a broom. If they spill the milk, then they'll grab a mop right, or a sponge. Um, and it's precisely this unique blend of knowledge and imagination that really characterizes early pretend play in childhood. And in fact, the cognitive processes that are involved in pretend play aren't only useful for planning, they're also critical um, for learning. Um, so for example, children who create imaginary companions tend to show increased theory of mind. Um, so this is just an increased understanding of the cause and effect relationships that dictate the psychological and social world. Uh, so I propose then that pretend play is really just a precocious display of children's developing abilities in causal raising. It arises out of those abilities quite naturally. Um, and that engagement in imaginary worlds actually feeds back um, to serve as an engine of learning as well, promoting these abilities that we need. 
Um, so to sort of summarize the logic in a single slide here, uh, the long period of pro protected immaturity uh, winds up leading to increased time for exploratory learning through play. Um, exploratory play allows for more flexible kinds of learning mechanisms that support the development of causal models that slowly adjust to the environment over time. These models support counterfactual reasoning. It's sort of inherent to the model to think about ways that you might change it in order to think of how things could be different. Um, and this is initially expressed in young children in the context of pretend play, really, as early as they can uh, start to talk. And finally, that reasoning about these possibilities feeds back uh, to support the very mechanisms that underlie um, causal learning um, in humans. Um, so I'm going to end with a quote um, from my colleague, Alison Gopnik, uh, with whom I've co-authored all of my work in this area. Um, and I'd like to thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.